Hang on, there's more to go. We're at a point of transition of government in our country here. Tuesday, new president will take the oath of office. So it's sort of a reflective time, nostalgic time in some sense. You watch the news and they review the various events of the last eight years. Certainly the war in Iraq has, um, has dominated headlines for a long time and there are there are some amazing pictures that have come out of that conflict. But probably one of the most poignant photos I've ever seen is a photo taken back in 2003, the beginning of the conflict, actually just prior to. It was a photo of some U.S. Marines being baptized. And they were being baptized in a makeshift pool in the desert north of Kuwaiti City prior to the launching of the invasion. The Lord Jesus Christ has left two ordinances to his church, two symbolic activities that are vivid reminders of his saving work on our behalf, communion and baptism. He said in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go and make disciples of all the nations, he says. Actually, there is only one verb here, one command. The command is to make disciples, to make disciples of the nations. The means that he gives us to make disciples is the baptizing and the teaching of all that has been commanded. They gain their imperatival force, if I can say it that way. They gain their command value from this main verb that says make disciples of the nations. These are the last words Matthew records of our Savior. His final commands to his church. We are to be about discipling the nations. To make a disciple is to bring someone into the relationship with Jesus Christ of pupil to teacher. That's what a disciple is. To become a pupil of the Master, Christ Himself. To accept what He says is true because He said it. To submit to His requirements as right because He has given them. He says Himself in Matthew 11, verse 29, Take My yoke upon you. Learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. It is to become a pupil of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in John 8:31, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them and teaching them that they might become learners from me. 
You know, folks, baptism has fallen on hard times in the evangelical church. We don't baptize enough. It's become optional for many, many people. Many who claim a personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ and yet have never, ever taken the first step of obedience to be baptized. I'm here to tell you this morning that failure to follow Jesus Christ at this most elementary point, this simple commandment, will bring devastating consequences for years to come. One writer put it this way. He said, the person who is unwilling to be baptized is at best a disobedient believer. And if he persists in his unwillingness, there is reason to doubt the genuineness of his faith. If you're unwilling to comply with this simple act of obedience in the presence of believers, how will you be willing to stand for Christ in an unbelieving world? The church is weak, seemingly powerless. The surveys say that the majority claim to be born again, and yet the church is so weak. I think a good bit of that problem starts here. An unwillingness to take the mantle of discipleship, to begin the process of submitting to the Word of God at the most fundamental level of baptism. This morning, I'm going to ask and answer for you eight key questions. Eight key questions concerning the topic of baptism. In order to clear up the ambiguity surrounding this critical demonstration of Christian discipleship. I'm going to have to move fast. Because we have more baptisms to go. So stay with me. I've given you a handout. I've listed those eight questions for you there. So let's just begin. Question one, what is baptism? Let's clear up the ambiguities. What is baptism? What does the word mean? The word baptism is a transliteration of a Greek word. That is that it is a Greek word given English letters and stuck into the English vocabulary. It is not a translation. It is a transliteration. The verb baptismo or bapto, it means to dip, to dip repeatedly, to dye, D-Y-E, as in clothing, to immerse, to plunge, to sink, to drench, to soak, to wash, or to be overwhelmed with trouble. Bapto, baptizo, the verb. It's used in Luke 16:24 to dip the tip of your finger into water. It's used in John 13:26 to baptize or dip a piece of bread in gravy. It's used in Revelation 19:13 to dip a garment in blood. The noun baptismos or baptism means a ritual washing or dipping. 
a ritual washing or dipping. It's used in Mark 7, verses 4 and 8, for the washing of hands and the washing of dishes. It's used in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, for the ceremonial washings. Lexically, the word baptize never, never, ever, ever, ever means sprinkle or pour. Ever. Furthermore, water is never said to be baptized upon someone. We are dipped, immersed, drowned, soaked, drenched. But water is never baptized unto us. The verbs as they are used in the New Testament indicate that baptism was not by sprinkling or pouring. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, they were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. They were being plunged, immersed, soaked, dipped in the Jordan River. Matthew 3, verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. He was in the water and He went up from the water. John chapter 3, verse 23, now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much Water there. There's no way around it. It means being stuck under the water. Secondly, second question. What is the theological reality that baptism portrays? You heard it in the testimonies given here already. Baptism symbolically portrays a believer's union with Jesus Christ in his death burial, and resurrection. They are expressed symbolically by the descent into the water with immersion beneath its surface. They go into the grave. The grave closes over them. It receives them. They are then dead and buried, as it were. The watery grave bursts open and they come up from the water a new man. No longer inclined towards sin, but now inwardly opposed to sin and turned to the grace of God. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which is a dry passage, by the way. There's no water there. But Paul uses the picture of baptism to speak of the profound theological truth that we have died and been raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 1-4, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Third question. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Is Baptism necessary for salvation? There is a one word answer to this question. No. No, it is not. 
Paul says, Romans chapter five, verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. One of those works would be baptism. It is not as a result of baptism. Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Disbelief, not failure to be baptized, is the cause of condemnation. But... We should not miss the close connection between belief and baptism. Let me read the verse again to you. Mark 16, verse 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. They are placed as close together as you can imagine. Throughout the New Testament, that relationship between belief and baptism, they go hand in hand. That leads me to my fourth question. My fourth question for you this morning is who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? What I want to do with you is just take you quickly through the book of Acts. Very quickly through the book of Acts. And let's look at the biblical precedent as practiced in the early church. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Verse 37, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there are Bibles available to you. They're available in the pew rack in front of you or under the seat if you're on an aisle. Open that up to page 1089 and you'll arrive at Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 37. We're going to necessarily have to move quickly. The context here is Peter's sermon to the Jews at Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. He has demonstrated to them from the scriptures how they have killed their Messiah. And they are now under immense conviction and a sense of hopelessness, because if they have killed the one who was sent to deliver them, what hope will they have? So verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words, he he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I would have liked to have been there to see 3,000 people baptized in one day. That must have been something to see. Peter calls on them to be baptized, verse 38, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, you have to remember contextually, this is 50 days after 
The mob has called for his blood. To be associated with Jesus Christ is to associate with the one whom Rome has just crucified as a threat to the empire. The one whom the religious authorities of Judaism have said is empowered by Satan. And whom they had earlier agreed that anyone who followed this Galilean fraud, as they viewed him, would be put out of the synagogue. That is, cut off from all aspects of Jewish life. All economic ties, all social ties, all religious ties. They would be excommunicated from the life of the nation. So Peter now says to them, in response to their question of, what shall we do? He says that you now are to publicly proclaim your allegiance to this man in baptism. Peter will not allow any secret disciples. None. None. He doesn't say, do something in your heart that's between you and God and you don't need to tell anybody about it. He says, make public declaration of your allegiance to the crucified one. Baptism marked their break with Judaism. There was no going back. No going back. Chapter 8, verse 12. After the stoning of Stephen, things get even hotter in Jerusalem. There's an immense persecution that is breaking out. Saul is going house to house, dragging off the believers and imprisoning them seeking the death penalty against them. The believers scatter. They go to Samaria. The preaching begins there in Samaria. Verse 12. But when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Men and women alike. They believed and they were baptized. I want you to hold on to that notion. They believed and they were baptized. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Saul, the great persecutor of the church, has received his vision on the Damascus road. Jesus has said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who art thou, Lord? He reveals himself to him, gives him this commission to go. He says, verse 15, bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer my name's sake. And he says, Ananias sends this Ananias to him to share this, this commission with him. And immediately, verse 18, it says, there fell from Saul's eyes, something like scales, and he regained his sight. And then I want you to see it. He arose and was what? Baptized. He arose and was baptized. 
Paul believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he was immediately baptized. Immediately. Acts chapter 10. Beginning in verse 44. Context here. Is Peter has been summoned by vision of God to Cornelius, a Roman centurion who was a God-fearer. This is the beginning, according to the narrative of Acts, as it unfolds, of the gospel spreading out to the nations, in this case, the Gentiles. Verse 44, Peter comes to the house of Cornelius. They're all gathered there and he's speaking. It says, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who had received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. What I want you to notice is two things here. Number one, belief followed by baptism. Okay, same model rolling through the book of Acts. Belief followed by baptism. Secondly, what I want you to notice here is that we are talking about adult baptism. Adult baptism. They spoke in tongues. They were there listening. They spoke in tongues. They were baptized. No infants in this account at all. No infants. Acts chapter 16. Pardon me. Paul's on his missionary journey. <coughs> he has received the <coughs> pardon me, a Macedonian call. The gospel is now going to, to uh, jump across to Greece and move into Europe. So they go to Philippi, verse 12, a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. They go out to the riverside on the Sabbath, verse 13. They suppose to be a place of prayer there. Verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The Lord opens her heart to respond. And she is baptized. And it includes here a household baptism. A household baptism. Some would want you to believe that that meant that there were children involved in this. I would disagree with that very strongly and would suggest to you that when it speaks of a household, it is speaking of domestic servants. That would be a person's household. So when it talks about a household baptism, it's talking about a baptism that includes the domestic help, the live-in servants. This was a very wealthy woman. This is not uncommon at all when the head of a home believes God moves in some amazing ways, particularly in some of these types of cultures where the head of the home believes and then the whole household, that is all the adults in that home, come and join the faith 
of the head of the household. And so they are they believe and they are baptized to put children into this account is an inference, in my opinion, an unwarranted one. Let me take you a little further to another household baptism, verse 30 and following, where clearly there are no children involved. This is the imprisonment of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. You remember this, they're in the jail and they're praying and singing and God sends an earthquake and springs the jail doors open and the jailer is going to commit suicide thinking that his captives have escaped and that he would be held responsible. Paul yells out to him and and, uh, says, don't do that. Don't do any harm. We're all here. In verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. After he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I love that question. What must I do to be saved? What that says to me is that Paul and Silas weren't singing quietly. They were singing and praying, I suspect, at the top of their lungs. This jailer heard all of this. He has heard enough gospel witness to recognize there's something going on here. The mighty sign of God springing the jail open. He comes rushing in. His heart is laid open before God. And he said, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So his household is involved in this. His household all heard, his household all believed, and his household all was baptized. That means there cannot have been children involved because children, infants, cannot believe. Infants cannot believe. So it was, this household was made up of those capable of hearing and believing. And I would suggest to you, as I did earlier, it is the household help, perhaps older children, Take you over to Acts chapter 18. I need to move along here. Acts 18, verse 8. Paul's in Corinth. He preaches. It says, And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being... And there it is again. They were being what? Baptized. Okay, so there, as far as the book of Acts is concerned... Baptism is performed on all, without exception, who come to believe. That's the pattern of the book of Acts. It goes over and over again. They believe they're baptized. They believe they're baptized. Faith is always the condition precedent for the baptism. They believe first, and then they are baptized. Baptism is taught in the New Testament epistles. I won't turn you there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, Paul talks about the baptisms done at Corinth. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he refers them back to their baptism. So baptism is practiced in the in the book of Acts and it is taught in the epistles. The only one in the New Testament, the only one in the New Testament who repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ without becoming a baptized follower of him was who? A thief on the cross. Okay, and he just wasn't in position to be baptized. Okay, everyone else, everyone else, without exception, Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were baptized. Five. Question five. Where does infant baptism come from? 
Where does infant baptism come from? Infant baptism is nowhere referred to or even implied in the New Testament. The practice grew up originally because of concern by parents over the spiritual welfare of their children. The infant mortality rate in the first century was roughly two out of three. Two children out of three being lost. And so parents were concerned about the spiritual welfare of their children. In the late second century, Tertullian, father of the church, taught that baptism was a necessary part of salvation along with faith. But he actually preached against infant baptism. So Tertullian said that baptism is necessary for salvation along with faith. So you can see the idea beginning to migrate from the New Testament. But he preached against infant baptism. It was the combination of the church and the state under Constantine in the 4th century that gave infant baptism its biggest boost. Theological support came from Augustine, who wrote in AD 390, and I quote him, Precisely because they are laden with inherited sin, they are to be baptized, thereby to become partakers of grace. Close quotes. Augustine said you must baptize infants in order to erase the original sin in which They are possessors. He stopped just short of saying that baptism provides salvation. By the 5th century, so 100 years later, infant baptismal regeneration, the notion that baptizing regenerated the child, brought the child into a grace-saving relationship with God, had now become common practice, but it was still by immersion. It was by immersion. And it became the general practice of the church. Under the edict of the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, it became compulsory. It was the law of the land. You must baptize your infant. They were brought into the state by physical birth. They were brought into the church by baptism. It was a church-state paradigm. Sprinkling upon the head became a custom in the Western church in the 1300s. The Eastern church still baptizes infants by immersion even today. What about infant baptism replacing circumcision? You might hear someone say that. Well, infant baptism is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament sign of the covenant of circumcision, to which I would respond that the Bible does not teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite of that. In Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, when circumcision was being urged upon the Gentiles, it is the perfect place for the apostles to say, no, 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 we don't circumcise them. They are baptized. That is how they come into the covenant. They don't do that. They don't make the connection at all. It is not even mentioned. So infant baptism does not replace circumcision. Sixth, is baptism optional? Is baptism optional? The answer is baptism is a command. So no, it is not optional. It is a command. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Make disciples baptizing them. It is also assumed for all Christians. It is assumed. Paul bases his theological argument in Romans 6 upon the assumption of Christian baptism. He uses that, that, uh, that symbol of water baptism to make his theological point about being buried and raised with Christ. Baptism is also an act of discipleship. It is the irrevocable public confession of Christ as Lord. 
The call to Christ for salvation is not is a call to obedience. The first act of obedience should be baptism. Deny yourself and follow me, Jesus said. Baptism is not optional. It is no more optional than discipleship. If discipleship is not optional, then baptism is not optional. They are integrated one with another. The very I would suggest to you that the very entrance into discipleship is through the waters of baptism. And discipleship, beloved, is the Christian life. It is not an optional second step. It is the Christian life to be a disciple. Seven. Seven. What is the relationship between baptism and worship? Acceptable worship is obedient worship. Acceptable worship is obedient worship. If we join here together this morning as we do, we come before God, we proclaim our affection, we proclaim our devotion, we praise Him for His sovereign rule, His right to reign over us, and yet at the same time we refuse to obey even the most simple commandment, then our worship is defective at best, and it is hypocritical at worst. Acceptable worship is obedient worship. Luke 6:46, why do you call me Lord, Lord and do not what I say? Hosea chapter 6 verse 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. Acceptable worship is obedient worship. Finally, should I be rebaptized? Should I be rebaptized? Now listen carefully to me. The work of regeneration is a work that is accomplished once and for all. Therefore, baptism, which symbolizes it, is a work, or is a, not a work, but is a, is a ritual that should only be generally performed once. We are regenerated only once, therefore we should be baptized only once. But that assumes, there's a big assumption here, that assumes one was truly regenerate at the time of their baptism. If one was not truly regenerate, if they really were not a child of God at the time of their baptism, then the best thing that happened to them was they had a warm bath. Okay, first Peter, chapter three, verse 21. It is the removal of dirt from the flesh, Peter says. If there is no underlying theological reality, then it is nothing but a bath. Therefore, if a person has been dunked, while not knowing Jesus Christ, then when they come to understand their need to repent and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, then they should be baptized because they're not being baptized again. They're being baptized the first time. The first time. If you were baptized as an infant and you have now come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not being baptized a second time. You are being baptized the first time. Before that, all that happened to you was water was sprinkled on your cute little head. Okay, that's it. That's it. Now, some people 
who are children of God, have long periods of spiritual dryness. Or they struggle with persistent sin. And then later they, they break that bondage through the power of the Spirit. And they come and they say, should I be rebaptized? The answer is no. No. If you were regenerate at the time you were baptized, then one baptism is all there is. Even if you have struggled for a long time with sin. The question that you need to ask yourself is, were you truly regenerate the time before? And you need to search your own heart with that. Finally, parents. Parents, let me just caution you. My advice to you is to wait a little while with your children. It is very, very easy to get a child to say what you want them to say. At a young age, they are by nature compliant. They want to please you. So to sit with them and to put words in their mouth and ask them to pray this prayer and repeat it after you, you are running a huge risk, a huge risk of giving them a false assurance of something that's just not true. So be careful. Go slowly. Look for signs of the evidences of new life. Evangelize your children. Evangelize them. I, I evangelize all my children and I still evangelize my children. Okay? I'm not satisfied until I see them lead someone else to Christ, meaning my grandchildren. So I will continue to evangelize. And you should evangelize too. Let me pray. Our Father, I have spoken quickly, I have spoken forcefully, I have spoken directly on this topic of baptism, and, and Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply the truth to the hearts and minds of your people. Our Father, I pray that those things that I have said that do not bring glory to your name would be immediately swept aside, but the truth of the need to repent and be baptized for those who know Christ and the need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized for those that don't would resonate in people's hearts and minds even at this exact moment. Do a great work among us, our Father. I thank You for what You've been doing. I thank You for the testimonies we've heard and I thank You for the testimonies we will now hear. Glorify Your name in this place. Purge us, our Father, Strengthen us. Help us to walk in holiness. Grant us hearts of obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now by God's grace, we have six more people that want to follow the Lord in baptism.